Second Kings chapter six, verses one through seven is our text. Second Kings six, one through seven. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Behold now, the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and each of us take from there a beam and let us make a place there for ourselves where we may live. So he said, Go. Then one said, Please be willing to go with your servants. And he answered, I shall go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried out and said, Alas, my master, for it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there, and made the iron float. He said, take it up for yourself. So he put out his hand and took it. Reading of God's holy word, be seated please, and let's pray together. Lord, we believe that this portion of your word has been breathed out by you and is profitable for, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We pray then, O oh God, that you might use this passage through the help and illumination of the Holy Spirit to equip us for every good work. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen. By the time we reach 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha has been the agent of ten recorded miracles. He struck the Jordan River with Elijah's mantle and walked over on dry ground, 2 Kings 2, 14. He healed the bitter waters at Jericho with a jar of salt, chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. He cursed the young boys at Bethel, and two bears came out of the woods to maul them. Chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. He directed Jehoshaphat to dig trenches so that he could defeat the Moabites when water filled the land. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 27. He instructed the widow to gather jars for Jehovah to fill with oil. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. He raised the Shunammite woman's son from the dead. Chapter 4, verses 8 to 37. He cured death in the pot of stew, chapter 4, verses 38 to 41. He fed a hundred men 
with 20 loaves of barley bread. Chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. He healed Naaman of his leprosy, chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. And then he pronounced that Gehazi would be immediately struck with the dread disease for life, chapter 5, verses 19 to 27. Having considered all that, uh, all of these miracles that have served to demonstrate Jehovah's power through the prophet, one might be tempted to ask why this account about an axe head. It seems so trivial in comparison to the rest. Does it really belong here in this collection of powerful miracles that Jehovah did through Elisha's agency? What substantial teaching can we glean from it? Consequently, some commentators have attempted to rationalize it away. Maybe the stick was magnetized, they say. Or perhaps uh, uh, Elisha poked the stick around in the place where the tool uh, had sunk until he successfully uh, had inserted it into the socket of the axe head uh, and then lifted it up out of the river. Or could it be that the prophet simply took the stick and scooted it along on, uh, on the riverbed towards a shallower place in the river where it would be more uh, easily accessible, where uh, the one who had lost it could, could grab it there. I'm not making that up, by the way. Others don't bother to rationalize the count, but declare it to be a legend an event blown out of proportion by Elisha's disciples. But the godly man, the godly woman, the godly boy or girl approaching this passage will recognize that the text doesn't allow for the rationalization or a denial that some try to impose upon it. It says, Elisha threw the stick and made the iron float. Those are the plain words of the text. So the miracle that Elisha performed through Jehovah's power, shows us that God cares for us. That's what we want to see in our text. That's the teaching of our text. This miracle that Elisha performed shows us that God cares for us. It shows us, in the first place, God's concern for basic needs. Secondly, 
God's supply for genuine needs, and thirdly, God's providence for meeting future needs. God's concern for basic needs, God's supply for genuine needs, God's providence for meeting future needs. First then, God's concern for basic needs. 1 Kings 6, verses 1 to 7, addresses uh, both a basic and an individual need. The previous account of Naaman's healing involves an individual need, but it has significant political ramifications for the nations of Israel and Aram. After the Acts Head account, we find accounts of military engagements with Aram, chapter 6, verses 8 to 23, and of the Aramean siege of Samaria, chapter 6, 24 through chapter 7, verse 20. So before and after our text, we have accounts of international consequence, uh, international politics, foreign affairs, military strategy, national crises, and sandwiched in the middle of all that is the account of a seemingly insignificant axe head in the Jordan River. Put in contemporary terms, in the midst of the threat of worldwide terrorism and proliferation of nuclear weapons, worldwide economic collapse, the war between Ukraine and Russia, China's threat of invading Taiwan, and the resulting escalation of political tension between the United States and China... Does God have an interest in my basic needs? Does the great and mighty God care about the things that concern me personally? We make a mistake when we associate God's greatness only with his immensity so that we think that he's like a modern-day chief executive officer, so busy, so preoccupied, distracted, and pressured under time constraints that he has no time to meet with the common workers of his company. Part of God's greatness is that he does attend to the small details and problems, uh, the individual needs, the mundane affairs of the believer's life are not Two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care, Jesus said to his disciples, and even the very head, uh, hairs of your head are numbered. So do not be afraid, for you are worth far more than many sparrows. God does care. God cares 
about your axe head. And this point of theology isn't inconsequential. Because if you don't believe this, if you don't believe that God cares about your individual needs, about the mundane, ordinary affairs of your life, then you are going to be tangled up in the little problems, uh, the small details that uh, will pile up before you, and you won't cast them on your father because you think surely he can't be bothered with them. They don't matter to him. So you think on them. And you brood on them. You worry about them. You fear over them. Instead of casting all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. As second, uh, 1 Peter 5.7 compels you to do. God is great. God is transcendent. And yet he's concerned for your basic everyday needs. The sweet psalmist of Israel makes this point in Psalm 40, verse 5. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done, and your thoughts toward us, there is none to compare with you. If we would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. God is the great wonder worker, David says. His wonders are multiplied, David says. Yet he thinks of me and my circumstances like no one else, such that his thoughts concerning me cannot be numbered. Do you see the kind of God that you have? Your axe head matters to him. God is concerned for your basic needs. And then we see, secondly, God's supply for genuine needs. Now, the text reveals the desperate straits in which the sons of the prophets lived. Recall that the sons of the prophets uh, occurs numerous times in the Hebrew Bible, 11 times, in fact, only in the books of First and Second Kings, all during the period of, of, of Elijah and Elisha, especially Elisha. It refers to the members of a, a prophetic order, having no reference to physical descent from a prophet. These are not actual sons of prophets, in other words. These are men who worked and prophesied under the instruction and leadership of a more experienced prophet, whom they called Master. In 2 Kings 2, verses 3, 5, and 16, 
Elijah is called Elisha's master, implying that Elisha was once among the sons of the prophets. He was once a member of this prophetic order of the prophets. And now Elisha is master. Of the several branches of the sons of the prophets already mentioned in 2 Kings, this is undoubtedly the group from Gilgal, uh, east of the Jordan River, 2 Kings 4, verses 38 to 41. And evidently, this particular branch of the sons of the prophet was expanding to the degree that they outgrew their living space, we're told here in the text. So they asked and received permission from their master to go to the Jordan, cut trees, and build a new place to live. Verse 2. The text reveals the sparse economic conditions in which the sons of the prophets lived. At least one of them didn't even own the tool that he was using. Hence, his panicked cry in verse 5, Alas, my master, for it was borrowed. Now, our gut reaction is to say, well, just go get a new one. To which the young prophet would reply, with what? It shows how far out of touch we are with ninth century Israel. We are worlds away from the setting of ninth century B.C. Israel. The beginning of the Iron Age is usually dated around 1200 B.C., but we glean from 1 Samuel 13 that Israel lagged behind her neighbors in developing the technology to use this metal. And so iron implements would have been tremendously expensive. Many hours of labor would have been required to, to gather the wood, to heat the fires, uh, to refine the ore, and then to shape and sharpen the tool. Losing a borrowed axe head, then, would be comparable today to borrowing a table saw from a friend, and because you don't have a vehicle to transport it, borrowing his truck as well, and then once you load it up and drive it away, crashing the truck into a river. So this was no trivial circumstance, and it was no trivial miracle. It was a genuine need for God's help. And when there's a genuine need for God's help, should we not expect God to bring that help in a powerful way? And the text seems to be saying to us, you can expect God's help in your life when there's a genuine need. We may, we may need divine help to discern what our genuine need is, especially given that Christians in the West have expanded the, the definition of need to cover so much. And we must understand that God may supply either in a marvelous or in a mundane way. 
but this text, along with the rest of the Bible, testifies that our destitution is the arena in which God works to supply for our genuine needs. Thirdly, our text teaches us God's providence for meeting future needs. Now, by God's providence, I mean, as, the West, as Westminster Lodger Catechism 18 defines it, God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. You see God's providence at work in this text, though perhaps not obviously. Notice something simple. The presence of Elisha, the man of God, as he's called in verse 6, turns out to be a very crucial factor. What if he'd never been asked? Or what if he'd refused to go? What if he hadn't been there? Then the axe head is lost, and the opportunity for God's glory to shine in this miracle disappears, and it doesn't appear in God's inspired word for our edification this evening. But in God's providence, one of the sons of the prophets asked Elijah to go along. Verse 3, please be willing to go with your servants. What a, what a weighty request that turned out to be. And in God's providence, Elisha answered, I shall go. How important was the prophet's consent? Now, there's no way that either this one among the sons of the prophets or Elisha could have guessed that their request and response would be so critical. Doesn't this reveal to us that that there are circumstances that God arranges before we ever know that we will need them. Looking back over this account, must we not say that God's providence was already at work when no one could possibly know it? The request and the consent in verse 3 look like such a routine matter that we think nothing at all about it, really. It's a simple request. It's a simple reply. And yet, in these seemingly minor details, God was already at work providing for a need that was yet unseen and unknown. If you've been a Christian for any time at all, you have doubtless 
seen these kinds of things in your own experience. And you have stories to tell about the way God's providence has operated and done things that you could have not possibly known beforehand. You couldn't have possibly seen. There was some sort of seemingly small detail that you thought nothing about at the time. But later, and our perception of God's providence comes most often from the vantage point of hindsight, later you recognize that it was God at work in your circumstances, in advance, for your good, for your help, for your deliverance. And when hindsight catches up with you and you perceive the workings of God's providence in your life, you do well to record that for your own benefit and for posterity's sake. But whatever you do, make sure you pause and worship and give thanks to the Almighty God who is high and exalted but who bows low to be involved in the everyday, ordinary circumstances of our lives. As a means of of focusing on uh, the message of, of this short account as a whole, I want you to consider how Israel would have heard this short Narrative, or at least how they should have heard it. We know that First and Second Kings were were not completed until after Judah was captive in Babylon. So the question becomes: How would the exiles in Babylon have heard this account some three hundred years? after Elisha? In order to answer that question, it's, it's helpful to link our text in chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, with the four accounts in chapter 4, verses 1 through 44, the widow's oil, the Shunammite woman, the poisonous stew, and the multiplied bread. These five accounts show Jehovah delivering and helping the believing remnant in Israel. The combined testimony of these five accounts is that here among the faithful remnant were various people of God, each with his or her own version of desperation, to whom Jehovah brings his grace and help. How might such a testimony strike the people of Judah years later 
who had lost their land and their kingdom and had been carried off to Babylon. Could we not understand these accounts in chapter 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, among them, as an appeal to the unfaithful among the captives who had lost their way, preferring apostasy to fidelity to Jehovah? Are not these accounts saying, Israel, here is the God available to you. Behold how Jehovah is at work in those who fear him, how near he is to you, how near he is to the brokenhearted, to the poor, to the needy, repent and seek God who offers himself to you. And he'll care for you just as he's cared for his faithful remnant. Let this be an appeal to any under the hearing of this sermon who have lost their way to repent and seek Jehovah the God of the Bible. But then would not the faithful among the captives have taken these remnant accounts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, among them with its report of the burgeoning numbers of the sons of the prophets as encouragement that God can, does, and will yet work among his people no matter how diminished their numbers have become. Let this be an encouragement among the faithful remnant of our day. Let this be an encouragement to us, members of a small, reformed Presbyterian church in New Bern, North Carolina, whose numbers have fluctuated over the years, whose membership has had its expansions and contractions, and yet our God, has been faithful to work in the midst of his remnant in this congregation. And that should cause us to pause in praise and thanksgiving to our God. Let's pray. Our Father, We are grateful to you for these reminders that you care for us, that we can indeed cast all of our anxiety upon you because you are a caring God, because you care 
about the small things of our lives. We pray that you'd help us not to allow these things to pile up, but to be diligent to cast our anxieties upon you, to be diligent in prayer, to lay them before your throne. All of our sorrows, all of our cares, all of our burdens, to lay them at your throne. Do be a God to us, O Jehovah. Continue to meet our basic needs. Continue to look upon us as you see genuine needs. O Lord, help us. We confess you are our help and our strength. You are our rock and our fortress, our shield. And we look to you, O Father, asking that you would be gracious to us, that you'd be kind to us, that you would encourage us uh, with this text, that you would edify us and remind us, O Lord, that you indeed are faithful to your remnant. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.